Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 29. 1 Samuel 29. Uh, we have been uh, still working our way through the biography of David. Uh, Lord willing, we'll get through the end of 1 Samuel. Take a break. I don't know if you know it, but uh, Christmas is coming up, so you've got a little over a month to get my Christmas gift. Um, uh, let me repeat that uh, or uh, restate it. Men, you have over a month to get your wife a gift. Wives, you have over a month to get everyone else in your life a gift. It's pretty much the way that works. First uh, Samuel 29, um, and uh, we, we, we find ourselves uh, in a shorter chapter, but uh, I think it's a story we often overlook. You'll find it on page 271 of your pew Bibles. With that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer of 1 Samuel writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. The commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. The commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord did not approve of you. So go back now and go peacefully, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Agish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to to re to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, we ask, as always, you would open our hearts, we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our, our uh, uh, mouths that we would speak the truth of the gospel, and our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience. Lord, may we be transformed because we've encountered your son by the means of your word. May I decrease so you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. May be seated. I don't know about you, but where I come from, we had a thing called school buses. And we all rode school buses because that was the funnest part of the school day, right? Um, and uh, I rode it almost the entire time I was in school. We had the same bus driver and the same route and the same bus. All those years. And uh, I remember it was either at the end of middle school or, or uh, maybe my freshman, sophomore year in, in high school. Uh, but, but I remember we, we, we would take the same path. And, and instead of going to the end of, of Elmer Davis Lake where, where there's, a, there's a turnabout, we, we, we would just stop at the last house of the kid we had to drop off for the road. And then we would, uh, the bus would back into what was a, a, a largely unused uh, a little 
parking spot. It's a gravel parking spot. I wouldn't call it a driveway. You can you can park one car there too if it's a uh, if it's a truck. And and uh, then then we would just go back and and continue along our our merry way. And we had done this hundreds, if not thousands, of of times. 175 times a year plus all those years. The same path, same same schedule, everything. But on this one particular day. Uh, the, the bus driver backs into that little spot and she overshot it. And as a result, one, if not both tires got stuck in the mud. And we were stuck, period. Didn't matter how much she revved up that diesel engine, it was not going to go anywhere. It D- didn't matter. We were stuck. And to make matters worse, the, the road that we were turning around on was not, a, was not like Versailles Road, okay? It, w- it wasn't a four-lane highway. It was barely one and a half. You know, one and a half a highway is one that two cars can fit on, but not with a yellow line in the middle, right? Someone has to risk being in a ditch. And that's about the size of this road. It's a little better now. But at the time, it was much more, more, more narrow. And, and so that meant that when the bus got stuck, it blocked the entire road. There was no one coming. There was no one going. We were just there. And so over time, even though it's not a popular road, not a real busy road, uh, but, but there were people who lived past where we were, and it was one of the few uh, uh, vacation spots, if, if you will. Just work with me here. We're talking about Owen County. And, and so there would still be some traffic. And so you couldn't get out, and you couldn't get in. We were just stuck in the mud. So we had to call the, the garage, you know, the, the, and all that sort of stuff because you don't have cell phones. So we had to track down a way to contact and all that sort of stuff. A lot of parents started to get really nervous when their, their kids weren't home and they got home from work. And, and uh, some parents came and got to the back of the line of all the traffic to get their kids, to get them back. It was just a whole mess. And the thing I remember the most was one of the kids started crying. They weren't crying because they were scared. They weren't crying because, you know, they needed to call a mommy. They were crying because they were going to miss Power Rangers. I have nothing spiritual to add to that comment. It's just the main thing I remember about that, that event. But we were stuck, and there was no way out without the help of someone coming to deliver us, without someone coming to get us out. And what we have here with David is someone who is stuck. You may recall what David has been doing. You remember that David is tired of running. He is tired of running and fleeing from Saul. And so he reasons within himself, which is the problem. That if he crosses the border and has to take a COVID test when he does so, but when he crosses the border into among the Philistines, they will take him in as a refugee and Saul won't come after him anymore. That compromise has led him down a path of more compromises. You see, it's okay for him to be among the Philistines, but the king wants David and his men to fight for him. And being that David doesn't want to fight against the Israelites or, or, or to fight against the Israelites' allies, he has to deceive the king in convincing him that is exactly what he is doing. David is stuck. Now, typical of biblical narrative, the, the storyline is interrupted here. So, so if you've been with us, uh, chapter 27 is when David compromises, goes hang out with, with the Philistines. And in chapter 28, which is what we looked at two weeks ago, last time we were here, was the story of, of the necromancer, Saul and, and, and the witch. And, and now we're back to David. So if, if, you, if you were to just write the story in chronological order, chapter 28 with the witch is out of order. 
This comes after what it is we read in chapter 29. The Bible does this all the time. We try to look at it whenever we, we come across them because it, it, it's important for us to understand how the Bible is written and why it's written the way it's written. The Bible does so for emphasis. You can do a chronological story, yes, but by, by changing the chronology, what we see here is that the writer wants you to contrast David and Saul and then compare David and Saul. Both are in compromising positions. And remember, the question we've had is, will David simply become another Saul? And it looks like right now, he just might become like him. Remember that David has joined the Philistines, the same people he has made a career out of defeating. And so we, we see here, starting in, in verse 1, that the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Now, what the Philistines are doing is they are preparing for one final epic battle. So what you have here is, is even though you, you have a king, you have commanders under them who have sort of their own army that they, they can run. And, and what the king seems to be doing is he's gathering all of his forces to overrun the Israelites. I believe, probably because of David, Achish knows that Saul is vulnerable right now, and now is the time to strike. And, and David is one of those military leaders that's going to be drafted in in order to make the Philistine army bigger. Maybe you're familiar, think of another historical example with this. Maybe you're familiar with the uh, Trojan War. Remember what happens there is that the Trojan prince Paris goes and steals the, the wife of the Spartan king, Menelaus, I believe is his name. And she's supposedly the most beautiful woman in the world. Well, Menelaus ain't going to let his, his bride just be stolen by the Trojan prince. So he goes to his, his, his brother, uh, Achaemenon, who is, who is the king of over all of Greece, and says, I want to get my, my girl back, right? It's, it's, a, it's a romantic comedy. You'll have to try. And, and so what does Agamemnon do? Well, what he does, he says, well, I could take the Spartan military and just go do it, or I could destroy Troy forever. So he doesn't just take this army. He takes all the armies. So everyone that's commanding armies. And so according to, to Homer, not the cartoon character, he amassed an army of 100,000 men covering 1,184 Greek ships. That's a, that's a big army. I mean, I, I didn't go to, to military school or anything, but that sounds like a really big army. Um, but Aphek is particularly a, a strategic location here. There's abundance of water here. It's, it's the last place really before they, they're going to cross into the Jewish territory. And, and they can all meet here and figure out their, their plan. Uh, in case you're interested in this, uh, we've, we have uh, done archaeological digs here. Aphek is, is mentioned in several historical contexts, the Assyrians and others. And it was a very strategic, very important city. What is most striking for us is if you take 1 Samuel, I know we started in chapter 16, but if you take 1 Samuel, you'll find that the battle with the Philistines is from the beginning to the end. And guess where uh, the first battle begins at with the Philistines? Aphek. Guess where we, what we read about in the last battle against the Philistines? We meet the city of Aphek once again. So the question the reader should ask, is Israel really better under a king, particularly King Saul. They wanted it, but are they better off now? Well, while marching towards Aphek, the other military leaders throughout the Philistines notice a strange sight. There is a Hebrew leading Hebrews 
in the rear to go fight Hebrews. And verily I say unto thee, they, they don't like that idea very much. Aphect is dumbfounded as to why uh, they wouldn't like that very much. But their reasons are kind of obvious, aren't they? The first reason is they believe that David is in solitary with Saul. And they've, they've got their, their points, right? They, they've got their, their bullet points. First of all, notice verse 3. David is referred to as the servant of Saul. And verse 4, he's referred to as an adversary. Of course, Saul is the guy they're going to go defeat. Why would they then put in the back of the military a guy who works for him, fights for him, and has served under him faithfully for many years? If Saul's the adversary, anyone who, who fights for Saul and with Saul is therefore your adversary. They're thinking, this doesn't make any sense. Why would any of us do this? Can you really be trusted to fight against Saul? It looks like blind sabotage. Why were they tolerated? The second reason they, they, they have for rejecting David is because they have seen David slain for Saul. Notice again verse 5. Does this sound familiar? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now you remember that with Saul, that was the real source of uh, his ego being assaulted. And so, so when Saul first heard this song, number one on the pop charts, uh, Saul turned against David. And that was the beginning of, of praying on David and trying to kill David and hunting him down. Well, so the Saul had to do with, with pride, right? To the Philistines, it had to be a reminder, this guy has killed a lot of us. Why would we want him in the rear of all of us? This, this doesn't make any sense. In fact, notice the language they use in verse 4. They, it says, uh, would it not be with the heads of the men here? What, what are they saying here? It's like, look, why would we expect him not to kill us? <laughs> right? This is, this is what he does. Anyone, you know, listen to, to the top 40 radio anymore? Is that still around? It doesn't matter. I don't know. I'm, I'm not cool anymore. I may be a millennial, but I'm an old millennial. I've lost my, my coolness. Anyways, uh, in fact, that word head is, is important because if you go back to chapter 8, verse 2, you don't have to do that. You remember that what Achish gives David a job, it says, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Remember what that word bodyguard means? The protector of heads. Now, that makes sense. It's your job to keep the king's head on his shoulders. And that's his job in a nutshell. It's a very short job description. So notice what they're saying. They're like, to you, maybe he'll protect your head. He's under no obligation to protect ours. And don't forget again who it is we're talking about. There was a story early on where David was a little shepherd boy, and we're following how a shepherd became king. And he shows up to, to, to this battle, you know, bringing groceries. Uh, he he uh, works for DoorDash. And, and he shows up, and, and there's this tall guy out here. And he's, and he's talking smack about the, the Jews. You remember what David did? He chopped his head off, right? That's the point. He said, look, if there's one thing we know about David, is that this is what David does. When he sees the Philistines, he kills them in graphic ways. So no, no, we don't want him and his, his little army to fight along with us. Saul is before us. David is behind us. This sounds foolish. So despite what is obvious to, to others and what may be obvious to us, Achish still defends David. Notice in verse 3, he, def he describes him as being faultless. 
In verse 6, he, he describes him as being honest. And we see just how deceived Achish is by David. You can go back to chapter 27. Is David being honest? No. You remember that, that Achish would say, hey, hey I, I want you to go defeat these people over here. You remember what David does? He says, oh, I went and fought people up north. I went and fought people over to the east. I went and fought people over there. He would never say who he fought because he was never going to fight against the allies of the Israelites. He would only fight against those who were neutral to the, to the Jews and the Philistines in order to make them enemies of the Philistines, which only goes to help the Jews. He is called faultless and honest. Yet David, having compromised, is neither of those things. And it is here we see the real dilemma that David finds himself in. On the one hand, he needs the Philistines to protect him from Saul. On the other hand, he is quickly realizing he may need Saul to protect him from the Philistines. He is stuck in the muck. If David really fights on the side of the Philistines, he can kiss his, his Jewish throne goodbye. On the other hand, he's already an enemy of Saul. He can't do anything that will also make him an enemy of the Philistines. Those compromises have him in a sticky situation. What will he do? And you can almost hear David and his army on top of their horses armed with shields and spears and swords and armor and everything else. And in the back of David's mind, he's thinking, with each gallop of the horse's feet, what am I going to do now? How am I going to get out of this situation? But fortunately for David, he is exhorted by Achish to return to Ziklag because the other rulers don't want him. How fortunate that is to David. And yet, despite that, David protests. You see it there in verse 8, 8 through 11. We'll spend a lot of time on it. And you'll notice what he says, particularly in, in verse, verse 8. David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service till now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of the Lord the King? Now, that phrase should sound familiar to you, shouldn't it? If you've been reading along with us, David, it should sound familiar. Go back to the story of Goliath. Remember, when he's ready to fight Goliath, and, and he's like, well, no one else is going to do something with, with this, this Gentile, right? Uh, I guess I'm going to have to do it. Remember what his brother said? We know what you're up to. We know what you're up to, right? And, and you remember, David's like, chapter 70, verse 29, what have I done now? That's the sound of a little brother. I'm a little brother. That's the, that's the words of a little brother. Now what have I done, <laughs> right? You know, mom, right? That, that's the other sound of, of a little brother. What have I done now? Was it not but a word, he asked him. Chapter 20, verse 1, David fled from Nath and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, remember, this is when he's just beginning to flee from Saul. He says, what have I done, Jonathan? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? In chapter 26, this is where he shouts from, from, from far away because social distance mandates. He says, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is in my hands? But you see, in each of those instances, he asks the question of innocence in the context of when he's pursuing the will of God. 
But now that he is compromised, now that he has made decisions apart from the will of God, he asks this question and it rings with hypocrisy. Oh, Achish, what have I done? But once again, David's innocence does not contradict the perception of others. Though he may have demonstrated outwardly of his loyalty, he is rejected by the rulers, and in this case, rightly so. So what do we do with this text? What do we do with it? It's a pretty straightforward story. Very narrow narrative, isn't it? David, David puts his armor on, and then he's told to take it off because no one likes him in the club. What do we do with this story? I want to make three points of application. The first point we see in this text is identity is not genetic. Identity is not genetic. You are more than your DNA. You are more than your vices. You are more than your gender. You are more than your race. You are more than your status. You are more than your wealth, more than your voting block, more than your desires, more than your upbringing. You are more than the little tribal box secularism tries to label you. You are more than that. Now, notice that David is rejected primarily because he is a Hebrew. It is the natural theology of man to believe that transformation is a myth. That's their point. Okay, Achish, you say he's a different man. Okay, Achish, you say he's fought everyone else for us. But we don't believe him because a Hebrew is a Hebrew will always be a Hebrew. A Philistine is a Philistine will always be a Philistine. This is how tribalism develops and how tribalism never leads to peace. One of my favorite shows of all time is The West Wing. And uh, uh, makes you nostalgic when you watch it now, frankly. Uh, but but in, in the first season, there's, there's a scene where uh, one of the White House uh, employees finds out that the, uh, uh, the chief of staff has a history of alcoholism and drug use. And she leaks it to the press, which creates a whole sort of problem, as, as, as you, 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 you can imagine. And so uh, Leo McG- uh, McGarry, the, the, the chief of staff, brings her in. He, he's already fired her. And they're having this conversation trying to understand each other. And Leo McGarry tells the story of how he grew up under a father who was an alcoholic and, and how he now has inherited that, that vice from his father. And, and, and they discover that both of them have that in common, which is why she leaked it. Having been abused under that context, she didn't want the country to, to go through, that, through the same issues. And so she asks, is that, regarding your childhood, why you drink and do drugs? Leo McGarry says, I drank and took drugs because I am a drug addict and I am an addict. The woman says, how long did it take you to get cured? He responds, I'm not cured. You don't get cured. I haven't had a drink or a pill in six and a half years, which isn't to say that I won't have one tomorrow. So you see, you see the subtle problem there. It isn't that, that we all uh, struggle with weaknesses. We all do. My weaknesses aren't your weaknesses. So alcohol is not something I've ever struggled with. Never had alcohol. It's not something I'm particularly tempted with. That is something others are tempted with. But I am tempted with other things that people who struggle with alcohol don't struggle with. That doesn't mean that in that struggle, this will not be a long-term struggle, something we have to regularly guard against. Certainly, I'm not arguing otherwise. But you'll notice the language of secularism is that you are your vices. You are the things you struggle with. You are these things. Once an addict, always an addict. Once guilty, always guilty. Once struggling, always drunking. This is who you 
are, and you'll never be anything else. Never. This is your identity. And like the Philistines, secular tribalism says, you and I can't change who a man is. And everything about that person is defined by those issues. But then comes the gospel. And the gospel comes and says, no, you can't change those things. But God alone transforms who we are and defines who we will forever be. David is swimming in an atmosphere of tribalism that has taken his eyes off the hope he has in Jesus. Remember that what we need is a man who is a shepherd who will be transformed into a great king. Only God can do that. Not tribalism. The second thing I think we, we see in this text is, is that God's providence is greater than our doubts. In many ways, chapters 27 to 30 function as a narrative hall. We've, we've talked about this, this briefly. It begins with David trusting in himself and his own wisdom and compromising his throne and his men. We then see Saul at the end of his own compromises in chapter 28, having been cut off from God. And if David is not careful, he too will face the same fate as David. Now, that's one of the main points we see in these latter chapters of 1 Samuel. What sort of king will David become? We know he's going to get the throne. We don't know how, but we know he's going to get it. God has promised that, and God will, will deliver on his promises. The question is, what kind of king is he becoming? Is he just going to be like Saul, like so many of the kings throughout history? Well, this is where we meet the hidden hand of God's providence. And it is a hidden hand. If you go back to chapter 27, we mentioned it then. God is never mentioned. Remember, David trusts in himself. He looks within himself because he's watching Oprah. And he says, you know what? I've got a bright idea. I'll go hang out with the Philistines. In chapter 28, we also hear not the absence of God. What we see is the silence of God. Remember, Saul is going to go to, to, to speak of God to know what to do with the Philistine threat. So he'll go to the prophets. But... Samuel's dead. He goes to the priest and he remembers, oh, I slaughtered them all. And then he goes to, to the kings, but he realizes, I'm not getting the dreams I used to get. So we see the silence of God in chapter 27. And notice the same thing here in chapter 28. God is mentioned one time in chapter 28. It's on the mouth of the pagan king, Achish. It's not David. It's not David at all. And yet we still witness the hidden providence of God. Despite David's failures, despite this increasingly compromised situation, there stands the creator orchestrating all things for his glory. What is it that uh, David's son will later write in Proverbs 21? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The Lord will raise up leaders. He will tear down leaders. For God is sovereign over the universe. And even when we cannot clearly see it, there is God providential over the affairs of man. What is really ironic about this story is that the army that will dispose of Saul in chapter 31 is the same army who rescued David in chapter 29. It's amazing, isn't it? You can only explain that 
if God is on his throne despite our circumstances. I tell you, that's a real error for a lot of us American evangelicals. We believe the lie that we can control circumstances. And when we can control circumstances, then will come an abundance of joy. Then will come the confidence of hope and, and, and the peace we need and the love we long for. If we can only control circumstances, get that dream job, secure the, 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 the good uh, 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 d- diploma, g- get enough uh, uh, you know, marry the, the right girl or guy or, or this or that. And what we discover is that joy and love and peace and hope aren't rooted in circumstances. God is providential over all that. It is rather anchored in Christ. David here, you can hear him as he's marching to Israel, asking himself, what am I going to do now? What have I got myself into? He is stuck until God intervenes. And he is rescued by the hidden hand of providence. You see, had God not intervened, there would be no throne of David. But what is it that David finds when he does eventually return home? An empty throne prepared for him to sit on. Nothing can explain that but God. David isn't one who can explain it by his actions. The third thing of application we need to note is that God's grace is greater than all of our sins. To say that David is in a sticky situation is an understatement. Because of his unrepentant compromise, David risked his reputation, his future, and his well-being of those around him. Sound familiar? This is what compromising the gospel does. This is what compromising uh, obedience does. Sin metastasizes. And when we refuse to address it now, eventually we will find ourselves drowning in it. Our lives will become more broken, more complicated, and more difficult because we refuse to deal with the initial cause of brokenness. And chances are, right now, Right now, you and I are kicking the proverbial can down the road, thinking, well, this little area isn't a problem. I can control it. No big deal. Let's just ignore it. It won't grow out of proportion. And guess what's going to happen? Within days, weeks, months, years, it will consume your soul and your life. Look, I'm not much of a mechanic. That is an understatement. I can change a tire. Anything beyond that, you need to call someone. Right? But I am a son of mechanic. And one of the things I've learned as a son of a mechanic is if your car is making a noise, it's not supposed to be making that noise. And not addressing it, it's going to make a worse noise. Chances are you're going down the highway and you're thinking, that's a new sound. That don't seem right. Ah, mechanics, robots, machinery, it'll take care of itself. Alexa, take care of the car on it. Doesn't work, does it? No, you see, if you ignore the little problem, it'll become a much bigger problem. Maybe you've been to the doctor and he says, Doc, something's really got out of hand. And the doc says, when did this start? Oh, like six months ago. It wasn't as bad then. And the doctor looks at you like, I shouldn't treat people like you. I don't believe in Darwin, but sometimes his system works for people like that, right? (laughs) You know, look, if you couldn't figure out six months ago that this was going to be a problem, then... I can't help you. But yet we do it with sin. 
Whatever you have to do right now to fix a minor spiritual sickness, do it now before it metastasizes. Do it now before it gets worse. If you need to repent, repent. If you need to forgive, forgive. If you need to be forgiven, then be forgiven. If you need to reconcile, reconcile. If you need to break the bonds of addiction, break it. Fight for holiness before you are stuck. Because David is stuck. What hope does he have? His only hope is, of course, the intervention of God that will save him. Doesn't this sound familiar? The Philistines say David can't change who he really is. And if that's the case, what hope is there for someone like David? Because he'll always be the enemy of Saul. He'll always be the enemy of the Philistines. What hope is there for someone like him? But the gospel says only God can change who a man really is. Therefore, he alone defines who we really are. Despite our decisions, despite our past, despite our brokenness, despite our hurts. But it will take the intervention of the son of David for that to happen. See, at the end of the day, this text is actually a rescue story. David begins marching to war unsure of who he was and what he will do. And a long series of compromises had led him to this moment until God intervened. Do you see the gospel in the story? It's right there. In fact, if you go back up to verse 4, we, we see the real enemy of this story. It's right there. We shouldn't read too much into it, but it's right there. Now notice, how, how is David described by the generals? As an adversary. That's the real problem of the text, isn't it? The problem with David is the adversary. Now, again, we must not read too much into this. So we have to be, be, be careful. And I hesitate even to mention it. The Hebrew word there is Satan, Satan. It's the same word that shows up throughout the Old Testament. For example, Zechariah 3. You remember the story of, of, of uh, you know, uh, Zechariah has a vision of Joshua the high priest. And there is Satan, Satan, accusing him on behalf of Israel. Job chapter 2, who is it that appears before, before God in the presence of God? It is the same word, Satan, Satan. Now, what I'm not saying here is that this is Satan in the text, or we should translate it that. What I am saying is that the issue here is adversary. David has become the enemy, not just to the Philistines, not just to Saul, but even to himself. Because the gospel shows that our greatest enemy isn't a political enemy. But when we believe in a political enemy, we'll believe in a political savior. It isn't a cultural enemy. And when we believe it's a cultural enemy, we'll buy into a cultural savior. It isn't a financial enemy. Because whenever we believe in financial enemies, we'll try to find a financial savior. It isn't a relational enemy. Whenever we believe our problem is relational, we'll try to find a relational savior. No, the problem is, and it always has been, has always been Satan, sin, and the self. And here, they, they, they nearly get the thumb right on, on the button, don't they? There is an adversary among us. And it takes Christ to intervene. In fact, go back to that question David asked in verse 8. Why? What evil have I done? He asks. And that's the problem with David, isn't it? We know the answer to that question. He is guilty. But he claims his innocence. No wonder he's in this situation. See, what David needs is the same thing you and I need. One who is condemned as guilty, 
but is in fact innocent. And what is the question that Pilate asks the crowd? What evil has he done? And the good news of the gospel is that nothing, he has done nothing wrong. Jesus, the son of David, is declared innocent because unlike you and me, he is. Isn't that the good news of the gospel? Jesus becomes what you and I will never be, perfect, righteous, and without sin, so that we can become who he really is. Because the gospel is a rescue mission. And chances are here this morning, there are some who have never embraced the hope of Christ. And the hidden providence of God has you right here at this moment. Will you not repent? And there are some here whose lives are broken by sin. Will you too not find the rescue mission of Christ? Who died in our place and for our sins, condemned for us so that we can be set free. Let's pray.